Welcome to a 2020 election special brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul said, Pray for kings and others in power, so we may live quiet and peaceful lives as we worship and honor God. This kind of prayer is good, and it pleases God our Savior. As we approach our upcoming election season, Crystal Sea Books is sponsoring this special election show to encourage everyone to follow Paul's admonition to pray for our government leaders and to participate in our democratic system of government by voting in the upcoming election. Trust the Lord and live right. The land will be yours and you will be safe. Do what the Lord wants and he will give you your heart's desire. Let the Lord lead you and trust him to help. Then it will be as clear as the noonday sun that you were right. Psalm 37, verses 3-6, through 6, Contemporary English Version Hello. Welcome to this 2020 special election show sponsored by Crystal Sea Books. Now, given how close we are to a very important election, we thought it might be helpful to listeners to reflect on what the Bible has to say about how Christians should approach their civic duties. As most people know, the Bible was written in a time when most governments were monarchies, or kingdoms, ruled by a single ruler. In biblical times, there really were no participative democracies the way that we know them today. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is silent when it comes to how Christians are to interact with their civil government. The Bible is clear that Christians are expected to be productive and contributing members of their communities, and that includes participating in the selection of elected officials when that choice is available to them. To help us think about this very important topic, today we're going to be joined on the phone by Ken Connor noted trial attorney and former head of the Family Research Council and head of the Center for a Just Society. Among his other accomplishments, several years ago, Ken authored a very significant book called Sinful Silence, in which Ken and his co-author discussed what the Bible has to say about how Christians should operate in democratic societies. Ken, would you like to make a few opening comments to the listeners today? Well, thanks for inviting me, R.D. It's always a pleasure to be with you and to be back on the radio in Tallahassee. These are turbulent times in which we live, times in which great wisdom is required, and I appreciate the work of Crystal Sea Books in pointing people to the wisdom and the truth that is to be found in the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. Ken, you have been involved in advocating for public virtue for a few decades now and you have been prominent in many of the issues at the national level. This has given you time to form some thoughts about the major issues facing a culture that many think is abandoning its Judeo-Christian origin. Would you mind sharing a few of your thoughts about where we are today as a nation and as the church within the nation? R.D., we are really at very critical crossroads in our history. Not just one crossroad, but multiple crossroads. There is so much that's at stake. The future of our democratic process, in other words, whether we're going to be governed by our elected representatives or ruled by a judicial oligarchy composed of judicial activists. 
the future of the lives of millions of unborn children. In other words, are we going to continue with the unabated slaughter of the innocent unborn that has occurred ever since Roe versus Wade was decided? The future of religious liberty, that is whether people will be able to make religious and social decisions informed by their faith and consciences, or whether they're going to be required to fall in line with the dictates of the politically correct thought police. The future of the institution of heterosexual marriage. That is, whether we will embrace our historic understanding of the meaning of marriage or whether we're going to be forced to accept the devolution of marriage into any arrangement that suits the participants. The future of our economy is at stake. Will we exchange our market-driven free enterprise system, a system that rewards risk and success, for a socialist model that suffocates individual initiative and redistributes wealth in accordance with the whims of government bureaucrats who pick winners and losers, which, by the way, is a failed system that has been rejected all over the world when people actually had a choice. The future of America in the realm of foreign policy, whether American soldiers will be pressed into service in endless wars in which the security of the United States is only marginally at stake or not at all. The list goes on, and the stakes could not be higher. Ken, thanks for being here today to share some of your unique insights about this truly essential topic. It's been said repeatedly that this is one of the most consequential elections that we've ever had in American history. Not only is the leadership of our nation on the ballot, but a very large number of other elected offices, and in some places, individual questions for voters to consider. Maybe we should start with this question. Ken, are there any basic principles that a committed Christian believer should always keep in mind when they're thinking about who or what they're going to support in any election? First of all, R.D., I think it's important for Christians to understand that they're accountable to God for the choices they make. And they can count on receiving guidance from God if they ask for it when making the hard choices. You know, I think it's important to understand that as we look at Scripture, individuals and nations have been held accountable for the Lord for the decisions their leaders made for them. And whenever citizens have a role in the selection of their leaders, I think that accountability only increases. Well, thank you for that observation, Ken. I think it's really important for Christians to know that in all areas of our life, we can look for guidance from Jesus and the Holy Spirit and that we are ultimately accountable to God for all of our decisions. So given that we are all accountable to God, that definitely means we should be sober about how we approach the choices before us. So let's start with a really hard question. Ken, at one point you campaigned to become the governor of Florida, so you've experienced up close and personal the tension that voters sometimes have in reconciling a candidate's policy views with the voters' preferred leadership style. How can Christians go about balancing the many factors that go into making a decision on any individual person who is on a ballot? Well, R.D., at the end of the day, I think we have to put policy over personality, substance ahead of style. What does the record show about where the candidates will take our country in the future? And while past performance doesn't guarantee future results, it sure gives us some insight about the direction the candidates will take our country. And I also think it's important to realize that this election comes down to a binary choice. That is, Donald Trump and Mike Pence versus Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. 
and perhaps I should add, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, because they have had and will continue to have such a dramatic impact on where the Democrat candidates will take us. And I think it's also important to remember that we're not picking between our idealized vision of what we'd like to see in a candidate. Rather, we are actually picking between candidates that are in the field. A good example, I think, is in the selection of a doctor. When we're looking for a doctor, what do we place the greatest emphasis on? Their bedside manner or on their surgical technique? I don't know how others might feel about it, but I know I want the very best surgeon who's operating on me, and I would put that person's bedside manner secondary to his competence as a surgeon. Ken, you were the first person I remember talking about the dangers posed by judicial activism. Do you still see that as a problem in America? Has it improved in the 30 years since you first began talking about it? Or has it gotten worse? Well, first of all, R.D., let's define our terms. Judicial activism occurs when unelected judges substitute their own ideas and agenda for those of our elected officials. Effectively, these judicial activists make law from the bench rather than merely interpreting it, as it came to them from our elected officials. And they do so by treating the words and intent of the statutory or constitutional provision under consideration as wax, molding them to mean whatever they need them to mean in order to reach their desired outcome. It's a very dangerous practice because it short-circuits the democratic process. Activist judges usurp the role of our elected legislators. A simple majority of five to four on the Supreme Court then prevails over the large majorities it takes to pass a bill into law in the Congress. The consequence of all this is that the will of a small number of unelected lawyers wearing black robes prevails over that of our elected officials. And that's why the writers of the Federalist Papers, R.D., said that the concentration of the power of one branch of government into that of another branch is the very definition of tyranny. R.D., I have to tell you that I have described the practice of judicial activism as Alice in Wonderland jurisprudence because I can't help but thinking of that exchange that occurs between Alice and Humpty Dumpty in Lewis Carroll's famous book, Through the Looking Glass. There's a conversation that takes place that I think has direct application to the principle of judicial activism and treating words as wax in which you can make them mean anything you want them to mean. Here's the way it goes. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. And that's really what it comes down to in the case of judicial activism, which is to be master. The Constitution, the laws passed by our elected legislators, or the judges who treat the words of those laws and the words of that Constitution as mere wax and shape and mold it in whatever way they choose it to mean. At the end of the day, either the legislature and the laws and the Constitution will take priority, or the whims of unelected judges will take priority. Ken, what is court packing, and how can it affect the operation of our government? 
Artie, court packing means literally to expand the number of judges on the court, to pack the court, if you will, with political partisans who will advance the agenda of the party in power. In doing so, that simply turns the court into nothing more than a partisan extension of the party that's in power. It completely undermines the independence and integrity of the judicial branch of government, and it makes the court nothing more than a tool of the administration who holds power. We've had experience with court packing in the past. You may recall that back in, I think it was 1937, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was having difficulty having some of the legislative agenda that he had affirmed, affirmed by the Supreme Court. And in order to overcome that, what he viewed as an obstacle, he made an effort to pack the court. And the intent was to pack the court with Democrat partisans so that a Democrat agenda could be advanced. And that strikes really right at the heart of the separation of powers. And it absolutely politicizes the court. And so what we see here and what Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have both affirmed in the past is that they are willing to support packing the court. In other words, the complete politicization of the court so as to be able to extend and affirm the radical left Democrat agenda. And of course, in doing so, they completely undermine the Democrat process and they completely undermine the role of the court. They concentrate the powers of the legislature into the judicial branch, and they create nothing short of a form of judicial oligarchy. Could a subsequent legislature decide to expand the court to 15 members? Well, that is a function of the whims of the appointing authority and the legislature that confirms the nominations. In Mr. Roosevelt's day, it uh, meant 15 judges rather than the nine, but it could be any number of judges. It would be most likely whatever number of judges the nominating and confirming authorities felt were necessary in order to advance their particular political agenda. Could another legislature decide to expand the court to 25 members? And that's precisely the problem. It turns the court into a super legislature because it only requires a small majorities to overturn the will of the people as reflected by the legislature. There has been a lot of controversy about the issue of abortion for the last 40 years in America. And sometimes it can be hard to reconcile some politicians' claims about their faith and their public policy positions on abortion. For instance, both Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi are Catholics, but they support abortion on demand. How should voters begin to approach deciding how these kinds of issues should affect their vote? Well, first of all, R.D., let's talk about what abortion really is. It is the deliberate destruction of an innocent, unborn child, and it occurs in the most horrific way. Children are literally torn limb from limb by the vacuum suction machines of abortion providers. Or they are poisoned or scalded to death by toxic chemicals that are introduced into the womb. And in the case of the partial birth abortion, the child is partially delivered, a hole is drilled at the base of her skull, a suction catheter is introduced, and the baby's brains are sucked out. The skull is then crushed so that when the delivery is complete, a dead baby is assured. 
Artie, these are the kinds of procedures that can only be conceived in the minds of ghouls. And make no mistake about it, if Mr. Biden and Ms. Pelosi and Senator Harris have their way, these kinds of procedures will continue unabated. Yet the scriptures declare that human beings are created in the image of God and that God is the author of life. The Catholic Church affirms both of these propositions. That said, I'll let the voters decide whether Mr. Biden and Ms. Pelosi are the good Catholics they claim to be. And one more thing is important to remember, R.D., the right to life is the foundational right of all other rights. If you don't first preserve the right to life, no other right can exist. The right to worship as you please, vote as you please, speak as you please, these rights are meaningless to a corpse. So when you cast your vote, be sure to keep first things first. Ken, as an attorney with more than 40 years of trial practice, what do you think of the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court? I think she's a terrific nominee. She has a keen intellect, unimpeachable integrity, and a sound judicial temperament. She will resist the temptation to make law from the bench because she understands that the role of the court is to interpret the law, not to make it. She also understands the roles of the various branches of government and the importance of keeping those branches separate but equal. And the whole of her life and marriage, I think, shows that she respects the sanctity and dignity of marriage and human life. I can't forecast how she'll vote, but it's hard to conceive of a better candidate having been put forth by the president. We like our politicians to live up to our ideals. But it is clear from the Bible that God often used less-than-perfect men for His purposes. Ken, how do you integrate the Bible standards for our behavior with how you view whether any particular person deserves our vote? Well, the Lord truly does work in mysterious ways. King David, who was widely acclaimed as Israel's greatest king, was a murderer and an adulterer. Yet the Scripture declares him to be a man after God's own heart. And the Apostle Paul, who persecuted and tyrannized the fledgling Christian church, became its greatest defender. Again, for me, it comes down to policy rather than personality. What policies will the candidates advance? Do they align with my own beliefs and values? More importantly, do they advance the values that emerge from the Judeo-Christian tradition? Or do they undermine those values? Artie, I think we should not become enamored with the packaging. We need to ask ourselves, What's in the box? What will be the fruit the candidates bear? And as Martin Luther once said famously, I'd rather be governed by a just Turk than an unjust Christian. Ken, what is the danger if Christians today fail to vote in the November 2020 elections because they are put off by a candidate's strong personality? Well, a wise man once said, all that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Wisdom and experience tell us that's true because nature abhors a vacuum. If we fail to vote our values, someone else's values will prevail. And I've got to tell you, I'm worried sick about where the values espoused by the Democrat candidates will take us. Ken, if this election leads to a progressive left government in the White House and Congress, how could that affect the society and civil government we will be passing to our children and grandchildren? Well, I've got to tell you, R.D., I don't like the term progressive in that context. There's nothing progressive about a socialist secular agenda. It stifles freedom, initiative, 
and incentives. It elevates government in the place of God and demotes man from bearer of God's image to simply the best of the beasts. How we view man, that is, whether he's created in God's image or is merely a creature of chance, determines how we treat our fellow man. And when we view our fellow citizens as simply creatures of chance, history shows that the sanctity of life and the dignity of man goes out the window. Government becomes unbridled, powers what counts, might makes right, and it's the weak to the wall. Think about it for a minute. What measure of protection do you think that the law ought to accord a person who has been created in the image of God? Do you think it would be just a little bit of protection, or do you think it would be a lot of protection? By contrast, what measure of protection do you think it's likely that the law will accord to a mere creature of chance? On what basis could such a creature possibly have the right to claim dignity or value worthy of the protection of the law? Could a member of the minority claim to have a right to resist the will of the majority or the weak? to resist the will of the strong. Ideas have consequences. What we believe determines how we behave. And we are facing a conflict of worldviews in this election. What is the nature of man? What is our accountability to God? And what is the role of government as it relates to the protection of our God-given rights? Are they God-given at all, or are they simply determined by a governmental fiat? Ken, do you encourage people to vote in person if possible during these challenging election times and to ensure that their votes are properly counted? Absolutely. We're already seeing how mail-in ballots are being diverted, destroyed, or dumped. So if you can vote in person, R.D., I encourage you to do so. It's the surest way of ensuring that your vote will count. Ken, there are often conflicts between the political promises made by politicians or candidates that are at odds with the evidence we see from their prior time in public office. How should we go about evaluating the proof of performance by deed and campaign promises when choosing our leaders? Well, as the old saying goes, the proof is in the pudding. Both sets of candidates in this election have proven track record. On one side, you have a candidate who has shown respect for human life, the ability to foster a vibrant economy, a willingness to confront the evil of terrorism, a respect for the importance of creating and preserving a strong military, and an understanding of the importance of law and order in protecting our right and preserving a free society. On the other side, by contrast, you have a candidate that embraces abortion on demand, promotes a disposable man ethic, favors a government-driven rather than a free market economy, has shown timidity in confronting terrorism, and is a willing tool of the liberal left. So to the extent that past really is prologue, I submit the choice could not be clearer. The current Democratic platform has removed all references to God. Do you think that this is simply a reflection of the principle of the separation of church and state, or... Does it reflect a hostility toward the traditional value system that was embodied in our Constitution? Well, to me, R.D., it's an indication of a complete hostility to the values embraced in our Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution. It portends a secular society in which government is elevated in the place of God, human beings are diminished in standing and become pawns of government, 
and our God-given rights are no longer unalienable, but rather subject to the whims of government bureaucrats. It's not a scheme in which individual liberties flourish, hard work is rewarded, and a respect for the Almighty and our fellow man is embraced. Ten years ago, you wrote the book Sinful Silence to take a detailed look at the intersection of biblical principles and civic duty. What prompted you to write Sinful Silence? Well, at that time, back in 2004, when we published the book, we were faced with another important election. We wanted people to understand the nature of the stakes. And just as important, we wanted Christian voters to understand that they have a shared responsibility and accountability for the decisions our leaders make. Because after all, the voters elect the leaders. Now, in my view, the stakes in the current election are higher than they have ever been before. Literally, as I mentioned earlier, we are at not just one, but multiple crossroads. And the directions that we go in the future are going to be charted by our voters who in turn elect the leaders. And I believe strongly that the voters are going to be held accountable for the decisions made by our leaders going forward into the future because they've made their positions known. It's no secret where the candidates will take the direction of this country. Well, Ken, I think you're absolutely right. I think that probably just about everybody in America, uh, certainly probably most of our listeners would agree that this is a crossroads election. And I think that's a great way of putting it, because we do stand at a place where we have to choose one path or another. And the visions of both the candidate pairs, either Joe Biden and Kamala Harris or Donald Trump and Mike Pence, the distinctions between the candidate pairs and between the political parties would take this nation in very different directions. Now, we're not going to try to tell anyone today how they should vote. We think that a person's vote should be between themselves and the Lord. We do, however, encourage everyone to seek the Lord's direction in this matter. You know, the Apostle James has promised us that if we need wisdom, that if we go to the Lord and ask the Lord for wisdom, that the Lord will give us wisdom, that the Lord will direct our paths, that the Lord will show us which way to go. The Holy Spirit is the author of illumination, not just for so-called the big decisions in our life, but for every decision in our life. We certainly think that this election merits going to the Holy Spirit and seeking His guidance and direction. And we are frankly confident that if our listeners will do that, that they will receive the direction that they are sincerely seeking. Second Chronicles verse 714 says that if we will turn from our wicked ways, all of us, if we will turn from our wicked ways, that the Lord will hear our prayers and will heal our land. And I think that's what just about everybody wants today. We would like to see our land healed. And we believe that even though there have been many differences between the sides in this election, we believe that healing and unification and restoration is possible. But in order for it to be possible, we first have to seek the Lord's face, His direction, His guidance, and frankly, His blessing on this land. So, thank you for your time here today. We think that you've given us a great deal to think about. We think that your observations are cogent and sober. And again, we want people to seek the Lord's face. The only person that we believe that should tell you how to cast your vote is the Lord God Almighty. And after all, if the Lord God Almighty decides what he wants us to do, is there any reason that any of his children should not be obedient to him? Thank you, everyone, and we hope that you've enjoyed this special.
Today for our closing prayer, how about if we pray for the outcome of our upcoming election? Prayer for Upcoming Elections Father of life and Lord of power, you are the one who ordains the times and seasons of all things. We pray today, Lord, because we believe we have come to a season where we need renewal and regeneration and especially your guidance and instruction. As we approach the upcoming election in our nation, we know that there are great differences of opinions among the people. We pray that you would not permit those differences to become divisions that will separate families, friends, communities from one another. We pray that you would superintend the outcome of the elections so that our cities, states, and nation would be led by trustworthy people who rely on the power of your Spirit. We pray that you would give us wisdom, guidance, and direction so we may know how to cast our vote wisely and for people in whom you would invest leadership. We pray that all who seek your face in these matters would have their faith further mature and deepen. We know that many will struggle with the decision that they must make, and we pray you would guide them in this and all matters. We pray that your Holy Son would be constantly among us, teaching, loving, and inspiring. We give him all the glory, and we pray confidently in his blessed name. Amen. Thank you to all of the people who have listened to this program. This show is going to become a podcast, so if it has been helpful to you, we'd suggest that you might want to share it with some of your friends. It will be available on your standard podcasting app, so just search for the Crystal Sea Books 2020 Election Special. We pray that the Lord would guide each of His children to exercise the most valuable privilege they possess in a democracy and vote. And we pray that all will seek the Lord's face as we do so.